Hey everyone, TY here. Just taking a break from editing the Antisocial podcast to let you know about an album of guided meditations I've been working on with Catherine from Akiko Yoga. Just head to akikoyoga.bandcamp.com to check it out. And now I'll throw it over to Catherine to let you know a little bit more about it. This course functions as an introduction to mindfulness, perfect for beginners who want to get into meditation. Come join us, breathe, and work on calming the mind and being in the present moment. Hope to meditate with you soon. Hey, thanks for joining me for another week of podcasting and a big thank you uh, in addition to uh, just listening to the podcast, but also all of your help rating and reviewing and subscribing and following the podcast on all the different platforms, sharing these podcast episodes with your friends and your family, your mates, your people you don't even like, whoever it is, it all helps. It's massive. But if you want to take it one extra step further, come on over and join me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Andy Dowling. And support starts from only a buck a month. It is dirt cheap, nice and easy. And if you want access to an exclusive Patreon podcast episode that comes out each Tuesday morning, then there are additional tiers to access that as well. Patreon is fantastic for this podcast. It directly fuels this podcast. It keeps it all afloat. All the expenses are covered because of legends like yourself. So come on over to patreon.com slash Andy Dowling. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Andy Social Podcast, episode 247. We're chugging away here, and this week's guest is Rebecca Lyons. Rebecca is an end-of-life doula. I think this is probably the first doula I've had on the podcast. I've had a death care professional in uh, Emma Jane Holmes. I I cannot remember what episode number that is, but go back and have a listen to that one. That's a really good episode. Uh, But uh, a first for the Andy Social, a doula, an end-of-life doula. Uh, Rebecca is also an independent funeral director. She is co-founder of the company You and Taboo, uh, and that company is all about promoting and encouraging death literacy and conversation in the community. Rebecca has done some amazing work over the years. Uh, she's traveled uh, the world and put together this amazing report, which I've got a link to in the show notes over at andysocial.net, and you should be able to click through on the description as well and find all these links uh, in the show notes. But um, even if you're not into reports, definitely go and check this out. Uh, it is incredibly fascinating. What Rebecca's done is traveled the world, visiting all these different cultures in different countries and learn how they manage death, um, all the different practices that they put in place, the way that they approach it, their interpretation of death. And she's trying to grab these best practices and bring it into the community here in, in Western culture in Australia and, and hopefully in other parts of the world as well. It is a topic that we all have to go through, um, whether we like it or not, and we do go through it multiple times throughout our lives with our family, our friends, people that we know. Uh, so it is important to be talking about it freely, uh, not making it a taboo subject and not waiting until the inevitable happens and then we panic and we don't know how to process it. And this is all uh, centered around Rebecca's work. She wants it to become more accepted and very much it is it's it's part of our lives and we should be embracing it rather than uh, pushing away from it and repelling it. So uh, lots of great conversation in here, uh, lots of interesting insights and uh, certainly uh, has challenged me in the way that I interpret death as well. So everything will be in the show notes over at andysocial.net, andydowling.net. You can click through on the description. Uh, there'll be a bunch of clickable links in there. But enough waffling from me. Please enjoy this great chat with Rebecca Lyons. What came first? Was it being a funeral director or the being an end of life uh, doula? 
I was a funeral director for a long time hmm. before I entered into the space of anything um, outside the scope of funeral directing. I w- started out in a funeral home in admin and I moved on to doing what they call prepaid and pre-arranging with people. And then I went from there to funeral arranging, funeral directing. And by the time I actually left the funeral industry as a whole, um, I was the acting location manager for well, nearly six months. So I was sort of overseeing the crematorium. I was working in the mortuary by then um, and, and still funeral directing as well as sort of doing the logistics and the admin of, you know, chapels and rostering and cars and <laughs> all that sort of stuff. So I had a really good knowledge base mm. of, of how it all worked. And, I mean, I guess before we get into the, the dual stuff, what was it? What was it that attracted you? I mean, I know that uh, the, the the business that you run now, I mean, it's called You and Taboo, and it's it's exactly what it is. It still is a, a big taboo with a lot of people out there. What, what was it that sort of drew you to this industry? So in 2016, my partner and I were sort of having this conversation in the middle of a busy shopping centre <laughs> on a on a you know Saturday afternoon, and and we were ha- we were discussing it the bizarre thing of how many people would come into the funeral home in their sort of 50s, early 60s and go, mum or dad has just died. We have no idea what to do. How does this work? No one's ever died. We've never been to a funeral. Like there there was this absolutely transparent and obvious lack of death literacy in our community. Mm. And we go, how do we fix that? Like how do we tell people what their rights are, what their options are, what choices they have, so that the the sort of layers of um, trauma that can come with making uninformed decisions uh, are reduced Mm. in our community. And that's where the idea of You and Taboo came from. And originally, I mean, You and Taboo is still our education advocacy arm of what we do. Mm. It's, It's designed to create community conversation and make the idea of talking about death at just another part of life. Mm. So we we kicked it off um, 2016, Dying to Know Day, and we just held a big public meeting going, we're in the funeral industry, what do you want to ask? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no questions off limits, come along, ask, let's have, a, let's have a talk. Was that daunting, just to put it out there like that? It was actually liberating. Yeah. <laughs> it was really liberating. And and seeing the difference it makes. Like I've done so many public engagements now in terms of speaking to, you know, both in the medical community, nurses, medical professionals, allied health professionals, but also in community groups, you know, and, and Lions Club and senior citizens groups and University of Third Age, like um, Probus, all these sort of community groups who really want to know this stuff and the difference it can make to how they're going to approach their own mortality and their own end of life is really, really, um, it's incredible just what a bit of knowledge can do. What what drew you to it though? Like right at the beginning, like to just the entire industry. I mean, it's just not the typical path that most people would consider or even consider. No, it's not. But Death has always been a part of my life. I'm not one of those people who are going to get 
I mean, I'm in my 40s now, but I'm not one of those people who's going to get into their 50s and 60s and go, no one's ever died on me. Yeah. Um, I, I had a really traumatic death of someone. My first human death was when I was eight. Uh, and, and that was a really traumatic thing for me. Mm. When I was 14, a very good friend of mine committed suicide. Mm. And so that sort of stays with you when you're in your formative teenage years. Yeah. And then, you know, an uncle who we were close to, he died as well. And his wife also took her life. So it, it, I've, I've had sort of death as a presence in my life in various forms for a long time. And, and yeah, it's, it wasn't a huge leap for me, (laughs) but it's also one of those things that the universe kind of dictates, I think, because when I applied for the job at the funeral home in 2011, it was, um, I was a qualified property manager. I was got a cert for in bookkeeping and financial (laughs) services, and I'd had a history working for banks. Yeah. A bit different. So yeah, it it (laughs) couldn't have been more different, but it, it was the start of this path and, and what happened after you and Taboo was that um, we saw the need. Mm. And so I was actually within six months of, of the you and Taboo kicking off, I was made redundant from the funeral home anyway. And that gave me the impetus to go and get the doula training. And from there, there was a few experiences later, I realised I actually needed to hold funeral director accreditation here in Tasmania as well. So um, I'm not just a doula now. I'm also what they call a regulated business. So I'm authorised to handle human remains as a a third party. Mm. I mean, yeah, just, I mean, just you quickly reflecting on some of that, some of your history, I guess it really could have gone in two dramatically different directions. You could have absolutely just done everything you could to repel yourself away from, from all of this. But instead, you've you've just you've you've dived into it, and and yep. there's obviously a bit of fulfilment that you're getting, and and it makes sense. There's a link there where you can, you know, what it's like to to have to go through those things yourself. And now it's a case of how how do I make it easier for for other people when they're going through it? Because I mean, you're right. We like, I th- I think you said this before. I mean, we, we we all go through death, and whether you know we all will do eventually ourselves. But I think we all sort of experience it in different. Uh, different capacities over, over the course of our life. And I mean, I just, I went through one not too long ago and just, just to watch how rushed things can be towards the end. Like when, when we know that something's about to happen and people not having that conversation, not having that experience, not understanding all, all the things that need to happen. And it just creates this extra level of panic and, and, and stress that, um, potentially can be all avoided, mitigated. Um, but it's because it's such a, still such a taboo subject that people don't want to talk about it before it actually happens. And so it's like, we'll just forget about it, pretend it's it's not a thing. And then when it does come, then it's just, a, it's a complete shock to the system. Yeah. And that's, I guess, part of the tragedy of it for, for what I've, what I've witnessed. And, and I think you're right. That's the point. So the way we do death now in the Western world, in Australia, it's, it's sanitized, it's professionalized, it's medicalized, um, and that's for dying and, and death. And so when, when someone dies, you, um, you know, hand traditionally, well, conventionally now, mm. what happens is you hand the person to a funeral director and then it's this set of negotiations. You might say, you know, pick some coffins and or 
choose some flowers, do you want catering or not, notices in the paper, you know, 30 photos, three pieces or three pieces of music. Like it's yeah. it's it's this kind of set thing. Yeah. And you enter into these negotiations, but it it's not it's not an empowering situation for people. And when someone dies, they can often feel powerless. The people who, who are left behind can feel powerless because they're handing all this stuff over and getting, you know, a, a set of limited choices in return. So what I do, so I'm funeral director, but I don't run a mortuary. Mm. I don't run a chapel. I, you know, empower people to look after their own in their own home. Mm. So the idea is that people no longer hand over the power to someone else. They actually become a part of that journey, caring for their person in life, in death as they did in life. Um, and that they're, they're no longer victims of someone dying. They're actually actively doing for their person. I, I would assume, and as you said, like, you know, sort of the Western world, that's that's pretty much the standard um, for, for most places. But I, I certainly have seen sort of different cultures handle things very differently and, and certainly take things in-house within the family. And, yep. and I, like, you know, you watch the odd documentary on, on TV and you go, oh, my God, like, how could they do that? That's just so, it's, well, it's literally, it is foreign to, to what, we, uh, what we're used to. But um, do you find that now that you're practising this and you're, and you're uh, trying to encourage this more in the community that it's, I mean, it's probably still early stages, but it's becoming more acceptable or more accepted and more uh, welcoming for people now? Because I would just imagine if you've had no background or understanding of how this works and you're used to that very uh, sort of clinical way of, of going through those steps, then anything that's not that could be quite daunting. Yeah, and people do get daunted by it, and that's part of the the education phase we're in at the moment. I guess is mm. is showing people, you know, how it works, what it can look like. So I do workshops, um, and about what a home funeral can look like. So I doc when my grandmother died, bless her soul. We had um, she she permitted us. She, I said to her, I want to document how we look after you at home and I want to teach other people. And she she consented to that. So I have these beautiful photos of my grandmother and her sister and, and I do workshops showing people what a home funeral can look like and what, you know, just to see what someone looks like after five days mm. in the family home with no chemicals, no, no embalming, no, it, it's all sort of this natural kind of care. And, and the process that we went through, we, we painted, we had a cardboard coffin for her and we painted it and we, you know, those moments of bonding that when, what happens when you gather your tribe around to care for a person mm. and it, what it does, it creates this absolutely and very tangible difference in the grief and bereavement process of, of the people who live on. Um, and that's the magic, that's the beauty of it, and that's that's what this process does for people. It gives them a very a very different way to experience their bereavement and, and move forward. And when you start talking about that stuff with people and you start deconstructing, when was the last time you went to a funeral? How did that feel? What would you like it? Would you like it to be different? Because, you know, the other thing to point out is that the, the standard funerals as they are now uh, are exactly the right thing for some mm. people. That's exactly what they want and, and, and that's quite okay. But when you, 
you know, there are people who who don't have a, a greater informed choice and, and want that. And for them, you know, there, there's something else. I guess I guess the big thing is it's obviously education so people are aware of it and, and they can feel okay to accept an alternative, um, but just to have those alternatives there in general, just to have all those options so it's not just one one path that you go down and that's it and you just have to succumb to whatever whatever the legislation is or, or the rules or, 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 the, or the social norms it's being able to sort of sit back and breathe and sort of go okay what what are what are the the paths that we can choose and sort of as you said it's sort of that empowerment of the of the individual but I, I just I mean it's even just for you to explain sort of some of those scenarios of showing people and educating people like what what the body's going to be like in a few days being at home all those sort of things i mean for for a lot of us are stereotypical caucasian westerners that have had a pretty bland upbringing when it comes from a cultural perspective i mean that's that's a whew, that's a big that's a big learning curve uh so, and it's brave yeah do you find it's that it's brave for do, people to enter into that path yeah do you find that this particular I, don't, and I certainly don't want to pigeonhole or sort of stereotype, but do you find that there's particular types of people that are that are drawn to these alternatives? Is it cer- cer- certain scenarios where it's probably sort of an older generation who are probably sort of already having a lot of time to sort of think about this and they're going through a slower process? Is Are you seeing something that sort of attracts certain people? Yeah, but on many fronts. Mm. So it, you know, in in a lot of people's minds, it's the the realm of the hippies. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, and and look, there there is an element of of people wanting a greener yep. way of approaching their death. You know, mm. we're we're really good in life about you know starting to acknowledge where we need to do better for the environment. We're we're pretty terrible at it in in death. Mm. So there are people looking at that, going, actually, I I don't want a plastic lined hardwood coffin or, or whatever it is um so that's their in but you've also got people who are making financial choices right okay who who the, you know the diy option is you know a third to half the cost of a, a standard industry thing mm. so you know that that's a consideration for a lot of people as well and then you have people who are going well we actually just want agency you know, there's there's a lot of talk now, and this is one of the things I call it the great divide because we've got sort of this agency of choice that everyone talks about now for dying. Mm. We do our enduring guardian, we do our advanced care directive, we do our power of attorney, we do our will. They're the big four documents for for end of life management, and in the advanced care planning document you very much talk about you know do you want to be tube fed what kind of pain management do you want who do you want in the room do you want to be I don't know taken out into the sunshine and played certain music do you want you know medical intervention do you want life-sustaining treatment so you get a lot of agency choice and option in the dying Mm. and all of that seems to fall away when someone dies Mm. and there's people saying, well, if we get all of this choice before we die, what can we control after we die? Like, do I get a say in what happens to my body? Do I get a say in, you know, we, we, we know that we get to choose burial or cremation and that mostly that will be adhered to, but it's actually your executor's choice. Um, <laughs> you know, there's no requirement for any of that stuff to be adhered to mm. legally. So the idea is then 
creating the agency of choice is by talking to your people and there you have to enter into this taboo subject. Mm -hmm. You have to get comfortable with your own mortality. You have to then decide what it is you want, make some informed choices and then start talking to your executives and your family and and telling them what your wishes are and documenting them and and that's building this agency and choice for people. It's a, it's a reality that many people um, really try to steer clear of and do whatever they can to, it's just that, uh, it's the denial of the inevitable and, and just trying to, uh, focus on anything but that. And, and as, as we've said, like it sort of gets to a point where, you know, things start to happen that are not a preference, but it's, it's kind of like, I mean, for, for a lot of my life, I've seen it just in pop culture, like the way that we talk about it, we sort of romanticize, oh, what sort of songs would we like to have played at our funeral? And so that, that sort of, that level of it, which is just scraping the surface of the entire event. And I think that's about as far as many of us go, because it's sort of like this this sort of romantic sort of thing. Oh, I love, love these types of uh, songs and, and everything being played. And, and that's my representation of me and, and my life. And I want people to remember me, remember me by certain uh, things, cues, music, etc. But I mean, really, it's it's getting down to the nitty gritty. It's It's the it's the black and white of it. And it's making those really sort of direct uh, decisions that can, can really be quite confronting and uncomfortable for people. And it's quite funny because this morning I was, uh, I was uh, just scrolling through my phone on Facebook and I saw an article pop up and you just sort of mentioned it before. It just, uh, it's just funny how things just fall into place like this, but there's an article from the ABC and I think it was published yesterday and it's about um, a company in Tasmania and sort of, I think Northwest has me. I don't know exactly where they are, but they, they make cardboard co- coffins and they've been doing so for a little while now. The daisy boxes. Yeah. And, and so they had this, this great write up about it and they had a few sort of uh, you know, stories of different people that have, have, oh, I think there was one gentleman who'd passed away and his wife had um, painted the, the box with the, with the phantom from the comic mm. book thing. And so, and just, talking about what we're talking about now where people are sort of making decisions in advance. They're buying these cardboard coffins that look amazing. They're flat packed. So they go and like you can ship them anywhere and people get them in advance and then they can create, like paint them themselves and decorate them themselves, their own coffin, which on the surface, if someone just mentions that you go, Oh my God, that's such a horrible thing to do. But, <laughs> but the way they explain in that article and even just what we're talking about now, it's that, it's just having that control and, and sort of it's, it's that further extension of, of that very stereotypical sort of thing that pops up in conversation about, you know, the types of music that you'd like to have played at your funeral and certain things like that. It's just that next step along. And I think things like that and those types of stories help bridge the gap between sort of that very airy fairy aspect of, of these events. Um, and that reality, that factual reality of those really sort of how do you want to be buried? Do you want to be buried? What, what sort of like, you know, all those sort of yeah. those, those, those decisions that are made at, at death. So it's, it's just, but, but it's also, it's also the times in between. It's like, mm. it's, it's the difference between, I guess, a, a lot of people take an in to the death conversation through death as an abstract thing yep. okay. rather than death as their own mortality. Mm. So when, when, I mean, and our pop culture is really great at death as an abstract yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but when you sit down and say, well, have you considered writing your own eulogy? How do you want, what words do you want to remember you by? Um, what, you know, it's not just about the songs. It's about, you know, between the time that you die and the time there is a ceremony 
if there is a ceremony, what care do you want to your body? Mm. Do you want, like what happens in a traditional funeral home? Do you want natural preparation? Do you want anything invasive done to you? Do you want so when you start thinking about that stuff, it becomes really real. And that's that, you know, and because there is that in between time, between death and ceremony. Sometimes it's days, sometimes people try and get it over really quickly. Um, which I always find a little bit bizarre. There's a gentleman I worked with when I first started in the funeral industry and he used to say look it takes nine months to grow a baby it takes 12 months to plan a wedding it takes you know you, you plan a, a 21st party for a, a month and you want a funeral over in three days really mm. <laughs> um so you know it, it, and that sort of always stayed with me because it's there is that in between time and how do you want to be treated and yeah there's there's a lot of considerations to be had. And I think I think the big thing is that a lot of people don't even know what those considerations are. And so when when that happens to them and they're not part of that conversation anymore, it's left to everybody else remaining to quickly scrape together whether it be money, you know, just in that literal sense or just trying to get some agreement between the family who probably all have very strong emotional opinions that all conflict with one another to try and find some common ground. And that's probably why a lot of these these timeframes are so short because people just want to deal with it, get it out, get it done and move on. So it's not just the the reality of, of death, but it's also all the additional stresses and pressure that is within family and friends trying to work out what potentially would this person have wanted and but trying to fight your own biases as well along the, along the way. So um, I can understand like... Even even the one that I've just experienced uh, not too not too long ago, there was about a week turnaround, and and somebody had said, oh, "That's a long time," and I went, I go, oh, I, maybe I don't know, I don't really. I mean, luckily for me, I haven't been to a lot over the years, but uh, you know, I I guess maybe you know, it depends. So, and I guess uh, you know, especially in in Western culture, that's that's the thing. It's just you know, quick. Let's let's deal with it. Let's let's go through these steps, and then we can we can stop thinking about it anymore, and uh, we'll just we'll just scramble next time next time it happens. And I think that's part of the problem. So when I went, I did a fellowship last year, mm. um, Churchill Fellowship, and that sort of took me across six different countries looking at body disposal technologies, so things other than burial and cremation, but also um, relationships to, to death and ceremony. And, you know, one of the places I landed in was Mexico for Dias de los Muertos, and I was sort of got the rare and beautiful opportunity not just to be in the cities but to go out into the villages and talk to people and, and look at the, the altars to their ancestors in their homes and clean graves with them and mm. talk to them about what this this ceremony, what this, this festival and these days actually mean to, to them in, in the villages. And um, it's, it's, it's an incredible way that they do death. So I was based out of Oaxaca and some of the villages that I went to, there were two of them, and they both said the same thing. You know, there's a three-day turnaround between death and, and burial. But in that three days, the body stays at home with them. The entire community 
comes and hangs out at the house for three days. The band sets up out the front. (laughs) The priests come and say their prayers. They have this stream of community. They then have a procession to the church and to the burial. 30 days after that, they do it all again. So this is the community checking in on the family, talking about the person who's died, having these sort of rituals and follow-ups and ceremonies and creating this network of support. It happens again 90 days after that. So what happens is you build these, yes, it is a quick thing, but there's an acknowledgement that grief and bereavement will continue Mm. and the community support for those people is there and, and we're missing that in the West. Yeah. And it's one of the things that we build with family-led funerals, with with the home funeral idea, because what happens is you gather your tribe and when you get all of the people who you know together or, or a selection of them to wash a person's body or to dress a person, what you're actually doing is creating these network of, of, and bonds between those people that don't just go away. So one of the... One of the comments we get in in the industry after funerals, like in in the conventional sense, is, you know, everyone disappears after the funeral and and suddenly you're alone because Mm. there's this expectation in our community that the funeral's it and then life goes back to normal. normal. Only normal is never exactly what normal was. You have to find a new normal. And often in our society you have to generally do that on your own or with a few close friends. And there's been research out of, I think it's Western Sydney University, saying that, you know, most of us who are grief, who, who, who go through grief and bereavement, we don't go to professionals. We, don't, we, we go to our network of friends. Mm. And, and that can be lacking in today's society. So the, the idea of, of having something where those bonds can form and people can then check in on each other after the fact, it creates what, is, is part of the compassionate communities for for you know Australia. It's oh, it it it's such a massive gap. It's it's huge, and and even sort of in the last week or so, me writing notes down and sort of having a bit of a dig into your world and sort of understanding some of this stuff. Um, I've realised sort of how much I don't think about a lot of this, and I'm pretty. I like to think I'm pretty open minded and. Uh, certainly taking a lot of different perspectives, but, um, you know, I, I read through, didn't read everything, but I read a lot of, uh, the report you put together and like really fascinating, like amazing just to see how other countries and within those countries, there's so many different variations of the way that people are going through these steps. Um, and a lot of it's shocking, like as the initial reaction where I sort of go, Oh God, like, you know, I can't believe that you know, some of these people are doing this. This is, this is out there. But then the more that you think about it and the why behind it, I think that's when things start to fall into place, those pieces of the puzzle fall into place. And I think it goes back to what you said before where that sort of uh, institutional option of going through the funeral home and and having that sort of very stereotypical Western sort of process um, is still there for people, but to have those options and those alternatives, especially I think the eco thing's a big thing. I think a lot of people sort of start to – they're more – the more socially conscious, 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 conscious. <laughs> I can't even talk today. And um, and I think people want to have an impact and want to have an impact while they're alive. And I think people are understanding that they can have an impact afterwards as well. 
but was there, so I was, I was going through and I was, I started writing a list of all these different, these different ways that people are, are approaching this. And I just, I ran out of room on my, on my piece of paper, but I mean, for you that's had so much experience with this now and you've been doing it for so many years, was there any of these that was just a complete eye opener or was daunting for you or you found yourself challenged where you sort of had to go, okay, I need to really sort of take this in because this is a, this is a complete attack, not an attack, it's probably not the right word, but an attack on my senses or even just my, my thoughts of what I envisioned these processes to look like? I, no, I don't think I was challenged by anything in that way. I was excited yeah. by a lot of what I found um, and, and what people have come up with. I guess the, the most challenging thing would have probably been the idea of the Promesian. But again, that, I mean, that's a, a concept that doesn't have proof of concept yet. Mm. It's it's an idea. So What, that, what was that, you know, sorry? That is uh, the idea of, of um, basically freeze drying a person and, and going through a process of separating that person in, into, you know, small pieces, which are then dry, that can be shallow depth buried. It's, but, but it's a really... It was challenging to me because it's a very labour-intensive process. It requires two coffins and all this sort of stuff. And, and you know, coffins are not a legal requirement in my state. Mm. You, you don't need one at all. Um, so, you know, the idea of, of I guess I was challenged on, on the idea of that being really environmental because of what goes into it but but the things that you know some people have you know there's a couple of pictures in the report of me collecting bones mm. from the alkaline hydrolysis and you know people look at that and go you you picked them up I'm like yeah I really did I actually you know the bones are incredible and they come out so soft in in Minnesota where I saw that you actually can't give bones back to a family so we had to break them up and they have to go through a grinding process like yeah, like the remains from a flame cremation mm. also go through a grinding process. But um, I actually picked up a femur bone at one point and, and we had to sort of break them to, to go into the machine. And, and, you know, the idea that you can do that is it's amazing to me because, you know, the alkaline hydrolysis is not just a concept, it's actually working. And it's in, you know, I think five or six states now across America and it's about to be introduced into the UK, I think. It's, you know, it, it's it's happening. And so it wasn't confronting to me as much as it was really exciting because it's non-invasive, it requires no coffin, there's no um, air pollution from it and the byproduct goes back into the water cycle. <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, what a way to, to be useful. <laughs> Just yeah. to, like practically, like you're you're yep. just going back into back into the system. Yeah, and and look, the other really th the other thing that really excited me about what I saw over there was this idea of both natural burial and conservation burial. So I still think natural burial is the most ecologically friendly way to to return to, to dispose of a person's body to return a body to the earth. Um, and, and then conservation burial is kind of this business model that's built around natural burials. So a, a natural burial is a shallow depth grave. So you only have a, a metre of soil between the top of the body and the top of the earth. You have a chemical-free preparation of that person's body, so no um, packing down the mouth, no plastic eye caps, no stitching, no chemical washes. The body's only um, wearing 
uh, protein-based fibres ideally. You can use plant-based as well, but protein-based fibres like silk and wool are, are the best. There's no plastics. It's and, and then you shroud wrapped body, so there's also no coffin. And then you have a grave that has like compost material and ferns and greenery and you you only dig shallow, <laughs> 1.2 is, is how you dig. So the, the, what that does is put the body in the aerobic layers of the soil where breakdown and, and decomposition happens really much quicker than it ever would six foot under. And the nutrients, the, the benefit is the nutrients then go back into those aerobic layers of the soil. Conservation burial is where we go, okay, let's for argument's sake buy 10 acres of land and let's have an acre of that. So you can get 650, 700 bodies per acre if it's a field. Okay. So let's have a um, an acre of that 10 acres as a natural burial ground and we'll run it as maybe a not-for-profit. So the profit we make from those burials will go into not only conserving that 10 acres but buying the next little land. And let's make that next little land next door so that we're actually building wildlife corridors as we go. Mm. So, so this idea of conserving land and then benefiting the land with the burial of bodies as well, it's, yeah, it, it's phenomenal what people are doing. It's really thinking outside the box and I think that would help people get over the taboo of it all because I think then there's, I think a, a big thing with, with people is there has to be a why. Can't just be told something, can't just be told, oh, this is the way we should be doing it um, and just blindly follow um i think people need to understand before they really get the buy-in and so also that sense of purpose i think people need to feel that they're they're worth something that they can contribute something even if they don't always feel that way in order for them to sort of jump onto an idea they've got to it's got to make sense to them it's got to make them feel you know it's got to have that sense of purpose so i think things like that those options would would just open up people's minds so much more because you're 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 becoming a volunteer you know it's like volunteer work it but yeah. um but you don't have to do anything because it's done <laughs> <laughs> it's all done for you you don't you have just to sacrifice your weekend <laughs> yeah and, and that's the thing like you by making the choices by having the conversations before you need to have them mm. you're actually leaving this this beautiful legacy and and giving a gift back and it's it's one of the really positive, there's a lot of really negative language around dying and death and a lot of language that reinforces that people don't have choice mm. or they don't have agency. And But the idea and the narrative around actively giving your body back to the earth, act actively returning to the elements or to enhancing your natural environment, your final gift is a gift to the earth and that is your body. It's, it's actually one of the very few positive language narratives that we have around around dying and death because the most of it is negative mm. <laughs> and and you know, the language of dying we lose people we fight we battle we survive we lose the fight it's war mentality mm. yeah it's it's this idea of you know you you have to fight. It, implicit in that is is people fight longer than they even want to. There are people who go, Do you know what, I know they want me to fight, but I, I just, it denies people the ability to be a person living with cancer because they're a person battling cancer. 
and it, it sets people up to lose because, you know, heads up, we're all going to die. <laughs> so, you know, it, 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 there's this kind of disempowering war mentality that we enter into when we think about illness and death. And then when death happens, we talk about losing We've lost a person. So, I mean, you know, the, the standard joke is, well, did you check the fridge? You know, because what what do you do? Like when you lose your car keys, you immediately go, I'm so stupid, I should have been more careful. Like where have I put? So when you lose a person, there's kind of this implicit thing of could you have done more? Mm. So we, we always try and I try and steer away from all of that kind of rhetoric around death because it's not, when, you know, when you open the newspaper and you look at the death notices and it's passed away peacefully, passed away peacefully, passed away peacefully. That, that's not always how it goes, mm. <laughs> you know, but, but we have this kind of standard rhetoric that almost marks, masks the truth of, of what it is and it's just another way we can be disconnected and avoid and that's how it becomes a taboo, because we're disconnected from it. Dramatically disconnected from it. I mean, even just the contradiction of you know, using those types of words in, in the classified system, you know, those death notices to say pass away peacefully, but then to use all the other language about, you know, losing somebody or fighting or those survival, as you said, that war type language. Um, it's sort of, it's like, well, we'll talk about it in a, in a negative way light when we're trying to convey our emotions but without going it's it's just it's a contradiction there's so many contra contradicting emotions out there and i guess that's why it's so confusing and difficult for a lot of people to grasp and try and work out where do they even start um because there's just so many different norms out there that uh you know the way that we sort of accept accept these things and just not not connect with it at all um yeah, so it, we, I guess a big thing that I see with a lot of this is the empowerment of it all, like empowering people and not just obviously the person you know, for yourself and we all sort of think, you know, should be thinking about these these decisions, um, but even just to empower the family as a whole, that whole, as you said, the, the word that you said a few times, tribe, empower the tribe to collectively sort of work together and support each other. I mean... I'll I'll make an adjustment if need be, uh, but what what's your thoughts on things such as uh, volunteer assisted dying and and decisions when it comes comes to that sort of aspect? Because no doubt, as you said, even sort of one of those scenarios that you mentioned where somebody doesn't want to fight anymore, but they're sort of fighting air quotes um, due to the family or to these th this sort of resistance A sense from of death. Duty. That's right. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I don't know how it works in Tasmania or, or sort of, yeah, what, what the area is. It's actually currently being debated in right. our parliament at the moment. It's, it's the third or the fourth attempt that they've got to put the legislation through. Now it's gone into committee phase. So we're, we've all got our fingers crossed mm. um, that, it, that it gets through this time. It's actually this last uh, lot of legislation that's been tabled had the biggest... Um, interaction with the Tasmanian public ever on record wow. in terms of people who signed a petition in support. So the petition that was tabled had, I think, 16,000 signatures, and that, that give or take, um, and that is the most 
community outpouring of response ever for something that's been tabled in Parliament. So it, it's phenomenal and, and we're ready. We're mm. so ready because it is about it is about empowerment. It is about choice. There's a fantastic documentary that came out a couple of years ago called Fade to Black. Okay. And, right, um, yeah. yeah, it's a fantastic title, good song as well, had nothing <laughs> to do with the song. But um, they, they, you know, in this, this documentary is about an Australian man who, who's going down the path of, of wanting to have control mm. over his death. And it, it tells a story that is very, you know, it tells a story that gets spoken about a lot and that is having something to end your life, knowing that you have that control is actually more important a lot of times than doing it because in this kind of powerlessness of letting go of your mortality. So people people who have a person who's dying, grief starts long before death. But there's kind of this unspoken thing as well where the person who's dying is also grieving. Mm. So they're grieving the loss of their future, the loss of their relationships. It might be the loss of their, you know, the the times they're not going to have with their children or, you know, there's this process of grief that, that can be very different and at very different stages. And so for the person that's dying, the idea of being able to control the narrative of that is it actually can make a massive difference to how they approach their own their own grief and their own mental capacity going in to death and and you know people who have the stuff don't even always use it mm. it's about the control and the power and the empowerment that they have having the agency of that choice and it's so important having that sort of the the mental peace of mind to to have that control um, yeah. where you make that decision yourself i mean could actually improve the quality of life up until the point and and as you said may never take that option themselves and things just may just play out the way that they're going to play out but that that individual's quality of life because they're not stressed and the body's not stressed because of the way that you know they're they're worrying about you know these different stages of grief but also you know the family like sort of you're grieving because your your loved ones are grieving and they're stressing so you know it's just this this cycle you know back and forth so i think um and i, I can't remember it might have been andrew denton did a podcast series uh a few years ago Better was, off dead. yeah absolutely fantastic and i think i mean i've I've certainly not known about the topic for for years, and and always always been sort of sort of very positive to the concept. Uh, but that that series sort of just opened my eyes up or my ears because I was listening to it. But uh, it was just it was incredible, and just to hear those types of stories where they were talking to people and they just said, "Yeah, like I never used it, never 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 took the option, but I had it." And then I knew it wasn't up to me to go and fight with the doctor or get the get the paperwork, jump all the through all the loopholes and plead for somebody to help me or to flee the country and depart the family yeah. and, and do it somewhere in a foreign land just because you want to try and find that control. Yeah, and and the idea that I think I think we've handed so much off in our world to, I mean, we live incredibly busy lives now, mm. I know, and we've handed off a lot of stuff to professionalised service. We've outsourced. But the idea that we would outsource the decision about whether we've suffered enough seems 
really there's something lost there that that's something that people should decide for themselves i feel i have, I have to i have to and I, and, I, and i don't think it's it's amplified until those unfortunate moments where people have to go through it and they're not prepared and and i think uh i think the whole sort of premise behind that podcast series was i think andrew was talking about i think it was his his father or something like that i think i'm pretty sure it was his father could be wrong um went through an absolutely horrific end of life and just didn't have that option himself so they had to you know he had to endure just a really a really unfortunate end end of his life and the family had to to go through that as well so obviously that's uh that's prompted him to to look more into into this world into this space and I see it being discussed more and more now. And I think that with the changes of law where it'll empower people to then have those decisions, I think then I would assume it would naturally open up all these other topics and these decisions that we've been speaking about where suddenly people are far more open-minded about their preferences and what they want in into the specifics of, of, uh, of different forms of burial. Yeah, I, I hope you're right because I don't think, I think these legislations, what what we're seeing in in Victoria, Western Australia, and now hopefully in Tasmania, it it's a good start, mm. and I think it's it's the kind of bridge that is needed. But I don't know if it's as, I, I don't know if it's all that's needed. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm mindful of of the professor fellow in in Western Australia who who said, you know what, even if these these were complete law now, I still wouldn't be eligible. Mm. And he flew off to Switzerland. Yep. Um, you know, there there is there is argument that that, you know, there's room for this stuff to grow as people get comfortable with agency. Oh, yeah. It's a lot to take in, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. And, you know, there's there's a lot of, of scenarios and situations that aren't encompassed mm. in current legislations as well, people who are mentally ill, yeah. people who lose capacity, um, <clears throat> you know, the people who say, who say, you know, I really want this if I get to this point. But when they get to that point, they no longer have the capacity to make the informed choice and and, you know so where does pre-consent sit and there's there's a whole lot of other stuff that I think eventually we'll have to circle back to. Mm. Well I think uh, at the beginning of the report that you put together you were talking about some sort of projected um, figures as far as what's going to happen in Australia and, and death rates as the population gets older. I would assume if you're just looking at and I'm, I'm oversimplifying this here, but, you know, just looking at the two main sort of traditional options that people have now where you sort of just go a very traditional burial or you go down the path of cremation. Um, and obviously there's a lot of nuance in, in those areas, but with those two options, neither of them are overly eco-friendly. They've both got pros and cons in some, in some respects. Your traditional burial takes up a lot of land and, and we've, we've seen this over the years. I mean, just trying to work out real estate, you know, and, and there's, a, there's in some parts of the world, I'm pretty sure you, I'm sure you'll be able to, to tell me, but there's time limits on, on how long a body can, can remain in a, in a plot as well, which is a really sort of overwhelming thought to have when you're putting somebody in, in the ground and then knowing at some point in time, even if you're not around anymore, that that person needs to be moved. Uh, so as the population gets older and we're being more sort of 
heightened about all these problems that we're going to have, potential problems, I should say, um, I guess all these alternatives are going to be more and more, I think, I think people are going to be forced to have to talk about them. It's not going to be a choice. We're just going to have to eventually one way or another, we're either going to ease people there and get people on board, or it's going to get to a point where it just backs against the wall and people are going to have to start looking at all these other options. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, the, I mean, what's happening in the US at the moment, you know, there's there's a funeral, one funeral home I went to who said, you know, we offer cremation, would you like it, water or flame? <laughs> and it's that simple. There's yeah. another another funeral home who doesn't even have a flame cremator anymore. Right. They they just do they just do alkaline hydrolysis. Mm-hmm. Um and, and you're right about the timing too. So bizarrely in Tasmania recently graves have been given a 100-year perpetuity, um, which, which is so ridiculously complicated and, and unnecessary. Mm. But um, the idea is that the sanctity of that grave is maintained for 100 years. With natural burial, the idea is you're dispersing that person into the natural environment <clears throat> and the idea is you can reuse those plots. You don't need to look for more land because you're about land conservation. Um, so it's a very different approach. It's a different ethos. Uh, but, yeah, the the time limit in, in Italy, for example, you get 10 years in a grave. Wow. If, if you just go in a grave in a coffin, if and, and there is no buyout. So in the Czech Republic, when I was in Prague, they they continually pay, they repay right. and they can keep their grave. <clears throat> in Italy, they can't. It's 10 years, that's it. Um, unless you're buried in a vault, they, they do the big concrete vaults mm. into the ground and then you get 30 years. And whatever's left after that time is is brought up and then you get the choice. You can have it cremated and take it home or it can go into a wall cremated in, and put in a wall in, in the cemetery. So, yeah, it's it's a lot of management that is not necessarily needed and none of it really good for the environment. So we are going to have to be forced. To, I mean, if you went to a funeral home, I can't remember the exact statistic now that was in my report, but I know it was something ridiculous, like an 80% growth in the next, you know, 30 or 40 years yeah. or something. If you went to any funeral home and went... How are you placed for an 80% growth in your market share in the next 15 years? They'd be like, what? No. No (laughs) There there is not many funeral homes that would actually be able to take that on, if if any. And so the idea is that we're going to need new approaches. And I think for me, death is going to have to move back into the home and then how we, what we do with our, what we do with our dead, what, what, the way we farewell that person. I mean, a funeral is essentially the ritualised disposal of a person's body. Mm. You have to do something with that person's body. And and the funeral and the ceremony or whatever the ritual is, it might not be a, it might be, you know, friends gathered around a kitchen having having a drink and a yarn. Like whatever that, that ritual is or that ceremony, that's how you come to terms with what what needs to be done. It's part of that farewell and that goodbye. And so what what we do and the decisions we make around that are going to have to change, just purely based on volume. Is I mean, obviously the eco thing, it, it, it just makes the most amount of sense and, that, and that's my own 
that's my own preferences and bias that's in there. And it just logically seems to make the most sense as far as that sort of natural going back to the earth and, and having some impact, positive impact, but also freeing up space so that somebody else can use that same space that I've used several years or however long it takes prior. But what, I mean, you saw so many different methods out there. What were some of the more creative things that were just a little bit ingenious, like the way that they sort of decided to celebrate and, and I'm just trying to think of the right word. I think you used it before, but um, sort of deal with the body, like, you know, utilize the body. Yep. I, I love what they've done in the community in Craystone, in the, Colorado Rocky Mountains, seven and a half thousand feet above sea level, and they have this town of like oh, I think it's one hundred and sixty people in the town, and there's sixteen hundred in the district. There's no police force like presence there. There's there's an ambulance, but there's like just this town of incredible community capacity, and what they've done is create their end of life project. And it's in parts, so you have and, and teams. So, in like in, in a district of of sixteen hundred people, they've got one hundred and seventy five volunteers. Wow, like that that's huge. Mm. And their volunteers range from people who will care for someone when they're dying, from a person who will coordinate funeral arrangements, a person who will deal with the coroner to get the certificates. They have a care of the body team. And then they have a team, two teams, that look after the pyre. Right. So you register with the End of Life Project and they have an, <clears throat> an outdoor community pyre. So that's how they do their, they do an outdoor cremation. And all the community gather. There's a team that looks after the fire. There's a team that collects the ashes and the bones at the end. That, and, and it's people looking after people. And, and in terms of capacity and the network that that builds between those people and the way they're supported through their grief and bereavement, it's phenomenal. Mm. It was an incredibly impressive group of people to to speak to and interview. And I was actually lucky enough that the four or five days I was there, I stayed with the man who'd kicked it all off. Um, and And the capacity and the... The desire to do for other people is, yeah, that that really impressed me. I think also having people have having designated roles as well, so it's not just the pressure of a very small team that has to deal with the the, the front to the back of the entire process and have to be sort of like a jack of all trades. You can have people that really become passionate about their stage in the process and become really, really good, become experts. Um, yep. And and so then that just takes the pressure off everybody. And when when somebody or a family has to go through this this process, then they sort of got that peace of mind knowing that um, there's going to be multiple people along the way who are just, just absolutely awesome at what they do. I mean, how brilliant would it be if every every town and community knew there was someone to call on? Mm. <laughs> it's yeah, it's 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 a beautiful model of of just you know looking after each other. The other thing that that is is a reality that is that is happening that I'm excited for is is the recompose, which is essentially human composting. Right. Yep. 
Um, it, it's it's been through its proof of, of concept. It's it's proven to work. It's been legislated to allow it to happen, and it kicks off next year um, in Washington State in Seattle, I think. And and the idea is it's um, urban death project. So it is making essentially the process sort of similar to the process of natural burial but in an urban setting so mm. what happens is you know the the body goes into a pod the pod has like a, a compost material in there and and it takes 30 days for the body to break down and it, that includes bones teeth hair like everything down into a compost you can then take home and put on your garden is that um and sorry because uh, I've seen a concept many years ago, and I've, I've referred to this a bunch of times on the podcast, so people that listen all the time will go, oh, yeah, here we go, Andy's going to try and explain this. But is it is it that one concept that's been around for, for a few years where it's almost like a like a water tower in a way, where the bodies are placed on the st- on the top and then, oh, and then they sort of go down to the bottom of the tower and the bottom of the tower becomes more sort of the compost as it goes through each of the stages? I know that might have been an initial I- concept that people were looking at. Yeah, I think they've moved on from that. Right. Okay. Um, so I, I, th- I think they are connected. I because I I remember the visuals of what mm. you're what you're talking about. What they've ended up with is is a very different, very different to that. They're individual ha- pods, and they look like a honeycomb. Right. Okay. And 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 the person just goes into the pod, um, and and you know, thirty days later. I think it's, it cures for two weeks after the 30 days, but within 30 days the entire body's broken down. There's no DNA as such left at wow. all. And it's, it's yeah, it's, it's value-adding. And the other beautiful thing they've done is they deal with, um, I can't remember the name of it, there's some local forestry regeneration project going on in that area. <clears throat> so for families that don't have the capacity to take the compost home, they can donate it to the regeneration of, of other sort of native and, and, and forest spaces. I think that's that's really important to have a link there because obviously to create something of value um, is one thing, but then to be able to have it go in a direction or multiple directions that makes sense. So it's not just because, um, I mean, the first thing I thought of, and it's it's probably not very entirely tasteful, but I was just imagining like you go to go to Bunnings and you go and buy a, a, a bag full of compost for your garden. And I was just thinking, oh, yeah, well, I guess there's a few different alternatives that you could have there. But for this, it's like, you know, obviously it's if if the family's got the option to to take take it home and then use it to, to plant plant. Uh, plan something of significance and, and it's mm-hmm. symbolic and there's a nice sort of narrative there that makes sense for the family. But the alternative is that it goes to a bigger project and, and it's a, it has a bigger impact on a larger scale to something that's going to impact a lot more people, not just the immediate families. So, and I think that's probably what makes it a little bit more socially acceptable as well. Yeah. And, and look, it's, it's, in a lot of ways, a nicer idea than what, you know, the idea of, of burying people's ashes at the bottom of trees and things like mm. that. I mean, ashes are notoriously bad mm. for, for trees. Um, if, if it's a small enough tree, you, you could potentially kill the tree. Mm. Uh, big trees, ashes will, will grow around. Like, so the roots of the trees will grow around the ashes. Because right. um, when you put ashes in the ground, what you end up with is basically like concrete. It's a solid lump if it's all done in one spot so we always say to people you know if you're going to 
put ashes in, in the garden or whatever. You dig a really, it doesn't have to be deep, but you dig a trench and you lay them out and you, you're at least a metre from the roots right, of okay. anything. Um, but, you know, the and, and look, there's, you know, the amazing innovations and the disruptions that are happening. There's a guy who's developed, uh, again, like a compost mix that you mix in with ashes that neutralises the bad stuff in them, which you can then take and grow tomatoes in. Wow. Like it's called Let Your Love Grow and and he he's developed this for pet ashes. He's now developing it for human ashes. And it, it's it's amazing because it neutralizes the acidity and the all all of the stuff that's in the ashes and and makes it sort of, I guess, palatable for plant life. So yeah, there's there's some incredible I think it's I think it's the that's the big thing. It's it and what you said earlier in the conversation was about education and awareness and I think if people can start to see some of these alternatives that are not just for the greater good but it's also something that gives some symbolic connection that settles people's hearts in their minds to know that you know there is a nice thought that your grandmother or or you know, family member is is now feeding your family with a beautiful sort of tomato patch or whatever it might be or or um, you know the the traditional sort of lemon tree or the, things like that, where there's that symbolic connection that goes back yeah. to the earth. It's the ultimate in nurturing. Mm. Like I know I'm a mum, and and so the concept of nurturing for me is is an important one. And and when we talk about the stories and the narratives and the rhetorics around changing our concept of death and making it okay to talk about, they're the kind of narratives that are really beautiful and helpful to include. Um, you know, and, and another and another thing that's really doing that is, I guess, the introduction to doula, mm. into the, of, the introduction of doula into this space because, you know, doulas work with people before death. So a, a doula role is sort of from the introduction of, say, a terminal diagnosis or a life-limiting illness diagnosis, you can engage a doula even when you're well. But usually people will come to a doula, you know, when they get bad news mm. um, or when there's uncertainty. And then that that doula can sort of stay a presence or drop in and out of that situation up until the point of death as a, as a non-medical support. And it's the, the sort of removed third party that, that can look at a situation with less emotion in a way and go, well, how we, you know, if, if it takes 16 people, for the, I mean, the, the latest sort of information is it takes a team of about 16 people to care for someone who wants to die at home. And, you know, the palliative care figures say that about 70% of Australians say they want to die at home, about 15% of Australians achieve that. Mm. And it's, it's largely because we don't have the networks. People get burnt out or they don't know what to do or they don't know where to turn. Or So the introduction of a doula into that space can coordinate the networks, can go, okay, well, where's the team? Where's the 16 people? Who are the doctors? How are we all going to communicate? Do we need to put communication books and strategies in place? Who's going to feed the dog and collect the mail? And who's going to be there overnight? And who's going to you know, sit vigil for the family so the family can get sleep. And, you know, so there's all of this stuff that a doula can do in the space, which, you know, as a community in, in, the, in the current Western world, we've lost that. This is, death is community knowledge and it always was. 
in the last 100 years, we've lost 5,000 years worth of knowledge <laughs> about caring for our dead because we've handed it over. But prior to handing it over, the, the idea of a doula, you know, this is stuff we always did for each other as community-based caring for our people. And, and it's been the more modernised world that's, that's sort of that's fallen away. But bringing doula back into this space is, you know, it's, it's got a new word, and it's, <laughs> but it's what we always did. Mm. And it's coordinating care and it's building capacity and networks for people to look after each other. And it, it becomes, it's a fantastic um, it's a palliative care specialist. And he says that death is a social event with a medical component. <laughs> I like that. And that people should remember that. Yep. <laughs> and 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 it's it's so true because you know a lot of people the majority of people who are dying they don't they don't need specialist medical care. They need their community, they mm. need their family, they need their friends and and that's where the capacity will lie. Our doors I mean, for me, I'm, I'm not familiar with with them at all, apart from sort of seeing it, sort of sort of pop uh, pop up in in different parts of pop culture, sort of overseas, probably just seeing the term sort of in other other cultures. Um, what's it's not the right way of describing, it, but what's the coverage like in Australia when it comes to doulas? Is it is it uh, is there some presence in in all states and territories? Is it something that it still needs to be? Obviously, there needs to be more people doing it. But um, are there options readily available for most people out there in Australia? Yeah, look, there are four lots of training that go on in end of life in in Australia that I'm aware of. Two of them are doula specific. Um, another one doesn't necessarily use the word doula, and then there's one that's more of an over overall encompassing end of life training. So, mm. uh, between those four services, I would have to estimate there'd be two just over two hundred maybe okay, right. trained people who are who have had training in this space, um, one way or another. Uh, not all of them, and probably not even the majority of them, are actively working as doulas. Mm. Um, but there, but but by people doing the training, what happens is when someone they know is dying. This, they're a skilled person in that space who can go, right, well, let's look at this or let's think about that. Or So even if they're not actively working in it, they're still out building community capacity. And I think in Australia we're still very much in this education phase where, you know, of a, I don't know how many people are in Australia, but to have 200-odd <clears throat> people out of <laughs> the entire population of the country, it's not a, not a huge percentage, no, right? Not, no. So, so we're, we're, we're still out there building the, the levels of death literacy in people and working really hard to do it. So I, it, it's definitely something that's got capacity and it's something that's growing. I like the idea and I don't know if, Forgive me if I'm oversimplifying it because I don't know, I have no idea what all the training comprises of, but it's, it, it reminds me of people getting their first aid certificate and, and sort of having to refresh that every once in a while. And you may never use it. You may not, you may not even get it because you're in, in a workplace where you need it. It might just be a really good thing to have as a bit of peace of mind and to go down a path of having more sort of education around death. As you said, like a lot of people out there may never need to, well, may never need to practice it on a regular basis, but when these events arise, then there's more and more people in the community that have that 
that mentality, they've got that experience, they've got the awareness to be able to then go into action after that. So, and I would assume that there's quite a bit to to training and getting qualified, etc. Um, but I like the idea of just people just having it in in their toolkit, you know, just for for when whenever it occurs. Yeah, and look, there's no overarching oversight into doula training. There's the Australian Doula College, so you can, if you jump through certain hoops, be a member there. Uh, so, but not all all doulas are. So there's no sort of one regulatory body, I suppose, because they are non-medical. It, mm. it, it's about it, it's not about sort of specialised skill as much as it is being a being able to look for cues, being able to know what things are helpful at those times, and having you know working on your own capacity to sit with someone who's dying and and, and doing even just doing legacy work with them. Like, is there anything you'd like to say? Would you like to write letters for people? Would you like, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of emotional capacity required to do that work. And, you know, the different trainings can can focus on on that as well as the, the practical. Because it's 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 very much a case of you leave your baggage at the door. Mm. People, you, you meet people where they are and you become their advocate. You don't have to agree with it. <laughs> you you just have to go, if that's what you want, I'm going to help you make that happen. It's like continuing to improve people's uh, emotional intelligence and, yeah. and and even just have have more sort of self-awareness and, and be more compassionate and understand, as you said, those cues. You probably find that just anything in life, like just people around you, you're not even in a situation where somebody's sort of at the, at the end of, of their, of their road. It's a case of being able to sort of find those cues in everyday life. You know? And, um, I think yeah. that make, makes people better people. So it's yeah, it does. And it, it, it makes people better supports mm. for other people as well. The, the amount of, of people who have someone die that say, that say, you know, it, it, it no one talks about it or no one says their name, or, you know, it, it's knowing that it's okay to say to someone who is grieving, you know, I'm here for you. Mm. If, if you would like to talk, I'm happy to listen. What would John have thought about that? that you engage in conversation it's, and, and support people in a way that doesn't make them feel invisible. It's, it's a whole bunch of that emotional capacity building that, is the knowledge that you're right makes us better humans? I've got a lot to think about. <laughs> well, um, look, I'm I'm keeping on the time. Uh, if people if people just want to scrape the surface and even just get used to sort of thinking about this a bit more, are, are there are there sort of go to places? I mean, of course, I'm going to link to you and Taboo. I think it's you and Taboo.com. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of resources on there. There's some really good FAQs, by the way, like really good stuff that sort of just got me started and thinking a little bit differently. But what do you recommend? Like what do you recommend for people to, who just want to dip their toe in and just get used to sort of being comfortable about it? Yeah, so there's, uh, I would say look for a death cafe in your local area. And and you know what, a lot of them are online now. Um, so, you know, drop in online to a, to a death cafe because death cafes are brilliant in that they, they're agenda free. Mm. They run with whatever people bring to the conversation at the time. And the conversations are, are facilitated, but they're facilitated in a really open way. So there's... Uh, 
heaps. <laughs> There's heaps of them around Australia now. Um, the other thing I would say is I've recently become president of the Natural Death Advocacy Network across Australia and we are sort of revamping that a, a, a little but we've got you know there's I think 85 members now like people who are involved and, and wanting to connect with each other in in terms of you know looking at at how this space works and and what can be offered in local communities so you know there's there's groups and networks now check out um the, the end of life trainers, as I said, there's four different lots of training. So go and search them out and see what resonates with you. Talk to the people who are running them. Everyone who who is in this space is really accessible. Mm. Well, I'll, uh, I'm going to dump a bunch of links for people to check out. And I mean, even I'm I, I could keep talking to you for hours because even when you said death cafes, I'm like. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I need to talk about that as well because that sounds uh, really interesting and, and out there. I mean, just just the name itself sort of already sort of sparks interest, and no doubt with with a lot of people. So, lots. I mean, lots to talk about. But um, Beck, thank you. Happy to have a part two if you want. Oh, hey, <laughs> my arm is twisted. <laughs> If you want to learn more about the life of an end-of-life doula or anything in this space or even just anything in Rebecca's world, you can go to the show notes over at andysocial.net, andydowling.net, uh, and you can click through in the description of this podcast episode, and there'll be a bunch of clickable links. I'm going to put stuff uh, for you and Taboo, which is youandtaboo.com. I'll also have uh, some different uh, affiliations and resources that uh, Rebecca's associated with. I'll have some training links as well. If uh, any of you feel motivated or inspired to upskill yourself and just learn some some skills that will help you when uh, when this happens around us, then uh, there's certainly some amazing links in here that can uh, help you sort of build that skill set and get you some more awareness uh, on the topic of death which is something we've all got to go through. So go and check it all out, youandtaboo.com, uh, andysocial.net, andydowling.net, nice and easy. Before we wrap it up, as always, I keep plugging it because I love it. Patreon, patreon.com slash andydowling. Thank you so much to all the legends who have been a part of this podcast um, journey with me um, over the past five years, but in particular over the past several months with Patreon. The money that I'm generating from Patreon, which is amazing, uh, has helped uh, support this podcast with uh, covering the cost of editing, uh, website hosting, podcast hosting, the gear, um, just replacing things, updating things. And it's also um, helping me come up with all these new ideas to expand the podcast and make it bigger and better. So it's thanks to you guys. You're supporting it. You're making it happen over at patreon.com slash Andy Dowling. And a big thank you to the legends in my social circle, which is my $10 tier social circle. I would say it's my top circle, uh, my top tier, I should say, but it is not anymore. And I'll get to that in a moment. But a massive thank you to the social circle. They include Andrew from Perth, Mick G from Sydney, Ash from Daniloquin, Dan from Dapto, Rod from Rayleigh in North Carolina. We also have Patrick from Canberra, Liam from Brisbane, Chris from Sydney, Brendo from Leeton, Tim from Canberra, and James from Brisbane, and I must make a slight adjustment, a slight correction. Patrick from Canberra, not to really put him on the spot, but he has decided to up his uh, pledge, his his support to 20 bucks a month on Patreon. I put a, a cheeky little $20 tier on there. 
you don't get anything apart from just the validation that you're helping little old Andy with his little old podcast and uh, slowly building his empire. And Patrick has decided he's going to jump up, step up to the plate, and he is uh, he is supporting with 20 bucks a month. So thank you so much, Patrick, for that. That is absolutely huge. And uh, by all means, folks, if you haven't uh, looked at it yet, support starts from only a buck a month. It's dirt cheap. So a massive thank you to everyone who signed up for a dollar, five dollar, and of course, the 10 and 20. Go and check it all out over at patreon.com slash Andy Dowling. But that's it. A podcast in the bag. Another one to add to the long list. We're at 247 episodes now, getting closer to that 250. And uh, lots and lots of fun stuff to come. Next week will be a musician, um, an international international musician for at least, you know, for my Australian listeners. And uh, somebody that you'll know, or at least you'll know one or two of his songs, possibly. So I'll leave it at that. Before we wrap it up, liking, subscribing, reviewing, all that sort of stuff helps the podcast. It's massive. And uh, keep sharing these episodes around with your friends and family, in particular this episode. I think this is a really important episode. So I'd love uh, for people to be sharing this one out to more and more people so there's a bit more awareness in the community about the topic of death. But that's it. Another episode done. Thank you so much. Until next week, take care and ta-ta. Larry. Larry, please.